Hey, welcome to your turn. Mike Causey here. I'm glad to have you with us. We've got a trifecta for you today. We're going to be talking with uh, three reporters and the morning drive anchor, Tom Timmon. Uh, uh, we're going to kick off with Nicole Ogrisco, who is a long-time beat reporter, and her beat is pay and benefits, which is about as good as it gets in, in, in this market. <laughs> Nicole, thank you for coming in. I know you're yeah, extremely thanks. busy. Um, shut down. Got to mm-hmm. do it. Got to talk about it. Um, we, we've had, there was one during the uh, Obama years, mm-hmm. there was an extended one during the Clinton administration, three weeks, I believe, two weeks in the Obama administration. The, the one that we just had, I think one of the a lobbyists told me it actually amounted to 69 hours total, which is okay. 48, you know, Saturday and Sunday yep. plus whatever happened. What, what, this one was a little bit different, wasn't it? In addition to being short? It was short. It was a little different, I think. I think the Trump administration really tried to um, mitigate the noticeable effects of a shutdown as much as possible. Um, I think when people, you know, the first thing they think of when they think of a shutdown are those signs of the National Mall, the fences, the barriers. Yellowstone Park, yeah. The parks and everything. And this administration tried as hard as they could to keep as many of those things open as possible. Not everything stayed open. And if a park was open, I heard maybe different things like the bathrooms weren't open or uh, the trash wasn't getting picked up maybe at those parks or facilities. So, but they really tried as hard as they could, I think, to um, the, you know, prevent the noticeable impacts of a government shutdown from, um, you know, from the public seeing them at least. And, you know, we know that Social Security checks went out. We know that, you know, to the extent possible, not everybody was working at the IRS, but many people were. So, you know, I think it is fair to say that this administration did try uh, to make the make its message a little different. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, I th- uh, many federal workers recognize it, but probably people outside the government don't, how many functions literally are emergency or essential. Yes. And, and I mean, air traffic control didn't stop. Uh, yeah. As you said, Social Security, IRS, uh, the VA, you know, the right. very, an awful lot of things continue to go on. And, and, and I think the emphasis on not having those national park signs closed, uh, maybe, maybe push both sides into reaching a settlement. Now, the next one is this continuing resolution ends. Is it February 8th? It's February 8th. Yes. It's a Thursday this Thursday. time. So we don't uh, we won't go into our weekend. We'll go into our weekend knowing the the status, I guess, of yeah. the government. So did you uh, and the media went wild? You know, it was it was the end of the earth this yeah. time for sure. But I didn't see any particular panic among federal workers. You know, the only thing I think I saw, I did receive an email from one reader who said it's. 2.30 on Friday, and I have no idea what's going on. I yeah. haven't heard one thing from my agency. And she mentioned that uh, she had been at this agency, I think it was HHS, uh, in 2013. And in 2013, you know, they heard from their agency leaders, thanks for your work. We're, we're working on this. We're working on our plans. You'll know at this time what your specific status is, accepted or non-accepted or essential or non-essential, if you want to go back to those terms. And, you know, she said that as of 2.30 on Friday, she didn't heard anything. And then as soon as uh, I think she sent the email to me, she finally did hear from her agency. So I think maybe the communication end from agencies to employees maybe wasn't necessarily the best um, you know, it might be 
again, every agency operates differently. Yeah, and, and the timing is interesting, too. This, this one was Friday, was yes. like midnight Friday, technically. Yes. So, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday they resolved it. This one coming up, as you pointed out, will start on a Thursday if it if it happens. Right. So, so we'll, that presents different, slightly different scenario. Right. So uh, funding would run out at 11.59 on Thursday night and then Friday okay. morning at, at uh, midnight, essentially, is when, you know, we'll know what the situation is, if it's closed or open. And, and I'm sure everybody handles these differently, but uh, the, the shutdowns that I'm familiar with, people actually go to work yeah, and then shut down, literally have to shut down. Yes. So regardless of what happened over the weekend with Congress, federal employees were expected to go in that Monday morning, you know, set up the out-of-office responses on their email, voicemail, get furlough notices if they receive them from their managers. And then, yeah, after about four hours, they were expected to go home. So, I mean, I guess the the decision, you know, do I have to come into work tomorrow or not? It doesn't necessarily apply because everybody's expected to come in. Okay. You had a story on uh, January 25th. OPM has more details on your back pay during the shutdown. Can you sort of walk us through through that? that? Yeah. Yeah. So, what struck me about that memo was that OPM, similar to the way I think this administration rolled out the shutdown, attempted to clear up any questions about pay benefits. That includes overtime, leave, if you're on leave without pay. Wanted to clear that up as if the shutdown didn't happen. That's the message I got from that memo. Um, and talking to um, our colleague Jared Serbu, he kind of agreed with that. He, he said something along the lines of, doesn't it seem like they're trying to make it as if this didn't happen at mm-hmm. all? And so, you know, they basically said that you're going to have to go into your timesheet and pretty much say that you worked even though you didn't. And that's, I think, what that memo says. Um, and, yes, federal employees did receive back pay if they worked at all during that uh, three-day shutdown, you know, whether or not it was the one day, eight hours, you know, if they were essential or accepted employees and they came into work on Monday and worked that full day, or if they came in for the four hours and then went home for the other four hours. So federal employees will be granted back pay. Um, Or, you know, many federal employees work over the weekend. We should mention that. TSA, um, you know, Customs and Border Protection officers working along the border, many of them may have worked over the weekend. So I think OPM really tried to send a message that, you know, this didn't really happen. <laughs> or if uh-huh. it did, it didn't, you know, it's not going to impact you very much as far as your pay goes. Well, you know, I remember during the uh, Clinton shutdown, which ran much longer than anybody dreamed, mm-hmm. it literally went in from December into January. You know, yeah. that, was a, that was a real problem. But there were things like people who were on travel had to come home. You know, rather than stay in, if you're sent to Denver to do something, rather than just stay there and wait it out or, or get it done, right. you technically had to fly back to Washington or wherever. I mean, it's just just insane. So it looks like maybe somebody uh, in authority, uh, either the political side or the uh, not or the career side, has learned something about how to handle these. Well, I will say, uh, I think agencies have gotten really good at planning for a shutdown and. You know, because how many we've had four continuing resolutions in fiscal 2018. So at this point, you know, even if it looks like that next CR will pass, agencies have been planning and planning and planning for these shutdowns, whether or not the Office of Management and Budget, which technically uh, manages a shutdown, has been 
planning, you know, for this past shutdown is a different story. But, yeah, I think we've gotten pretty good at planning for these things at this point. Yeah. Well, and the the House seems to get most of the attention during the, these times. The, the Republican-led House is, is a Republican-led Senate. But the House seems to get all the attention, uh, both good but mostly bad. And yet uh, this, the House has passed all 12 of its yes. uh, appropriations, and the Senate has passed none. That is, I I believe that's. I believe that's correct. Yeah, I mean that just to me is is appalling that uh, uh, that this would happen. That's their job to 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 mm-hmm. not only make a budget but then to appropriate that money. Right, and you know I was thinking about this the other day. We're coming up on hearing the president's budget proposal for fiscal twenty nineteen. That should be out. February 12th, I think, is the mm-hmm. the date that we're hearing. It, it could obviously get pushed back if we don't have a solution for uh, February 8th. But, I mean, we're already thinking about the next year, yep. and we don't have 2018 figured out. And a lot of it comes down to the lack of movement on these appropriations bills. And I think, you know, many of the appropriations hearings, those hearings where the senators bring in the agency leaders and they sit down and talk about their budget priorities – Many of those hearings were scheduled pretty late, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's yeah a lot of time off. Well, the other thing too during the the short shutdown, the three day or sixty nine hour shutdown, I heard in the media again and again terms that were used incorrectly, and you mm-hmm. know not to be sticky wicked about it, but these are very important when you're talking about something like this and a furlough. The furloughs we had during the Obama administration, people did not get paid. Yes. That's a furlough. Yes. A shutdown is a shutdown, and typically people do get paid, albeit late, but they do get paid. But So when you hear these bat- battering back and forth, it, it, it sounds good, and people think they know what they're meaning, but that's not, not the case. These were not furloughs. That's a really good point. I think you're referring to when, because of sequestration, yeah. agencies, you know, some – I think some of them – maybe had to work without pay for five plus days. I think, you know, maybe even yeah. 10 or something like that. And you're right. Those were days that they didn't get back. Yeah. They, they took a 20% pay cut for that week or those, those right. two weeks. You, you mentioned the ugly word sequestration. Where, that, that popped up right after the uh, uh, Obama administration introduced mm-hmm. it. And, and it happened one year and then we haven't seen it since. Right. So lawmakers actually have been able to come up with bipartisan, for the most part, agreements um, to basically adjust those spending caps. So what you saw in 2013 is we hit the spending caps and we didn't have any other solution beyond those spending caps. So agencies basically had to make across the board cuts in order to keep within those caps. Um But, you know, we should mention that for fiscal 2018, we still don't have a sense of what those spending caps will look like. Lawmakers are still arguing, um, you know, there's a a sense that, you know, Congress is interested in raising uh, spending caps for the Defense Department. But many Democrats want to see at least some kind of parity between defense and non-defense spending. So that's the, the argument that we're still waiting for some sort of resolution on. Okay, Uh, I I wanted to ask at some point. Probably take a break. Okay. All right, we need to take a break here on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. We'll be right back.
Hey, welcome back to your turn. Mike Causey here, and I'm talking with Nicole Grisco. Had a good discussion about the shutdown and how this this one was very, very different from other shutdowns we have known. Um, last year, this year, uh, last year, I'll get it right, 2017. 2017. 2017, okay, for the record. Uh, all the talk was about cutting uh, the federal retirement system. There mm-hmm. were six different avenues at it. Uh, it, it was for many of us, and, and talk, these were the experts too. Uh, it wasn't would something be cut; it was what would be cut, and right. we were all speculating which benefit. And they were tremendously they eliminate colas for FERS retirees completely, mm-hmm. reduce future colas for CSRS retirees, uh, eliminate the Social Security gap payment, mm-hmm. which can be a tremendous amount of money. And if you're in a job where, that you're forced to retire uh, before age 62, uh, air, air traffic controllers, firefighters, LEOs, law enforcement types, yep. uh, you're in bad shape. Uh, and and a number of other things, raising the contribution rate for people. So there were about six or seven, depending, the, the dirty seven, the dirty six. And yet it just fell apart at the last minute. I would think that this, and, and you tell me because you're on the beat, this year, election year, obviously, and, and politicians are always looking ahead. They're constantly raising money. The House calendar shows they have 140 days that they will not be here, mm-hmm. and that does not include weekends. Right. So when you work in the weekends, 52, 52 uh, they're not going to be around very much. What do you think? Are federal benefits probably safe this year? That's a really good question. And the timing aspect that you just brought up, I think, is maybe a key part of that answer. Um, If I were to predict what will happen here is we'll see those same proposals or similar proposals come back in the president's 2019 budget proposal. Um, I think we're going to see them again. We'll write the story about it, right? We'll say, you know, the president is once again looking at your pay and benefits. I think, though, the conversation so the conversation ultimately comes down to whether or not lawmakers have an interest in finding ways to offset all of this spending that we're talking about, more defense spending, more spending potentially uh, for civilian agencies. And if they're really interested in finding offsets for those spending increases, then, yes, they may look again at these federal employee pay and benefit proposals. Whether or not it will happen and whether or not that interest is there, I'm not sure. And timing is not on their side, considering we still don't have a fiscal 2018 budget. We're going to need to start looking at 2019. There is an election, and there's quite a bit that Congress still has left to do. And they're not in the they're not in on Capitol Hill very much. Um, and also, it seems as if the uh, real hardline desire to find those offsets, I'm not sure that conversation is happening now because we're still talking about immigration issues. We're still talking about we're still trying to figure out what the, the spending caps will be for 2018 and beyond. So I don't think we're even close to coming up with whether or not federal pay and benefits will be the solution to offset some of these conversations So I think the proposals will come back. We'll write about them. People will get afraid once again. But whether or not Congress has the time and the desire to follow through with them, I don't know. Uh, It's um, it's my experience, and it could be wrong, but that in election years, whoever controls the White House and whoever controls the the House or the Senate – 
uh, that they usually don't do things like pay freezes and they don't do things that they they don't beat up people, workers. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the federal workforce and you and I were talking about this the other day, uh, everybody thinks Washington is it. And, and this is the government. In fact, it's about 14 percent of the federal government. And and you have places. My, my favorite, my two favorites are Ogden, Utah mm-hmm. and Huntsville, Alabama. Ogden, Utah, uh, I have a friend from there, and she said if you don't work for the IRS, uh, the Interior Department, or Hill Air Force Base, then you you have a job that supports them. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like for every federal job, there's supposedly four people that support it, anywhere from short order cooks to parking lot attendants. But it, it is the heart of that community, and it may be more important. The federal government may be important, more important to Ogden's economy than the federal government is to Washington, D.C. area, maybe. Yeah. And Huntsville, Alabama, the same thing. It's a miniature Washington there in northern Alabama. Every agency is represented. And I think a lot of these uh, congressmen, uh, uh, Mr. Chafee, who from from Mr. Utah. Yeah, Jason Chafee. Jason Chafee. Yeah. Uh, he he d- discovered, after going on that committee, how important the federal presence is in, in Utah, which is n- not a populous state, but a lot of the people there, uh, places, uh, um, Oklahoma. Uh, you don't think of that as a major federal center. It is. Mm-hmm. It's got FAA. It's got Postal Service. It's the interior. It's got everything. And at one point, the American Federation of Government Employees was the largest union in the state of Oklahoma. It may huh. still be. But I think when these particularly members of the House, uh, and those who are not in gerrymandered districts, those who are in districts that are at play, may look around, and particularly federal workers and retirees who aren't bound by the Hatch Act, could sort of make their presence known and say, hey, I'm out here, I vote, uh, my, my spouse votes, my kids vote, uh, don't, don't beat me up. Yeah, you know, uh, I think you bring up a good point, and I think the key to all of that is the federal unions. And I think it's been their job over the past year especially to go out and teach some of these um, other members of Congress, not the Elijah Cummings yeah. or Don Byers or Jerry Connollys of the world, that they have federal employees in their district. And this past year, we did see a few of those lawmakers put their name on letters saying that they would not support cuts to federal benefits um, beyond uh, Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, who's mm-hmm. in Virginia, who is a Republican um, names like Tom Cole come out to me right now. There were there were ten. I think there were at least ten Republicans yeah. that signed a, a, le- a letter saying they weren't going to do this. And and that, yeah, that could be expanded. And if, if I were advising the unions, and by by the way, they haven't asked me anything. <laughs> but if I were advising the unions, I would tell them to be a little nicer to some Republicans because uh, oftentimes what will happen, it, it, as happened during the Obama administration, you had a president who said very good things about federal workers, but mm-hmm. there were three years without a pay raise. And you had this this sequestration that came up and all that. Yep. And you had uh, a c- couple of years when they hid the distinguished uh, executive awards because yes. they didn't want they didn't want the public to think they were giving them money. So they they weren't beating up on federal workers uh, except for the, the if you uh, lack of a pay raise. But they also didn't do anything for them. And I, I, if I were right. the unions, I'd say this is a two way street. Yeah, I think it's a messaging issue. Yeah. Um, And, you know, maybe we're starting to see a few of those more unfamiliar names 
start to maybe realize the impact that federal workers have on their constituencies. Um, you know, a good example that actually comes to mind and haven't been able to ask the right people the right questions about this, but um, there's a name, Don Young, a Republican in Alaska, yeah. who would just put his name along with Elijah Cummings on a bill that would bring back some of those federal labor management forums that were just recently disbanded under um, an executive order from President Trump. And so, you know, I'm wondering what that's all about. Okay, you know, here's a name I haven't seen before, a Republican in Alaska who's putting his name on a bill that's designed to get unions and federal managers talking to each other again. Yeah. Well, you know, when you when you look at the Interior Department presence in Alaska, Social Security, mm-hmm. you know, IRS, uh, it, it is tremendous, you know, vis-a-vis the population of the state. So it's it's a large number. So it doesn't surprise me at all uh, that, uh, that that he's come in. And I think Alaska only has one member of Congress. And, and Alaskans are pretty independent, too. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to go their own way so that's uh, that's a pleasant surprise yeah yeah all right uh, we'll take a short break here we'll be right back on federalnewsradio.com 1500 a.m. Hey, welcome back to your turn. Mike Causey here. I'm talking with Jordy Heckman. He is a, a reporter for Federal News Radio, and he covers a, a, a very wide swath of the federal government. Jordy, thank you for being here. Um, first off, the shutdown, the shutdown that never ends. Uh, every time there is a shutdown, we've had we've had four in, in recent memory, uh, one for three weeks, one for two weeks. The last one was... 96 hours or something like that but it's nevertheless was a shutdown there were a few changes to it but you wrote a piece uh for federal news radio about the sort of the the aftermath of this and and pay and that sort of thing that's right mike uh thanks for having me on uh so you know really you know i i couldn't tell you how how long the shutdown lasts compared to other shutdowns this one was only three days long yeah but uh, we go through these these things in cycles, as you pointed out. That um, this this shutdown only lasted three days, but there was the same process where lawmakers on Capitol Hill proposed legislation even before the shutdown even happened, where there would be uh, legislation that would um, guarantee back pay for furloughed feds. Now, in that case, that did happen. They did pass a bill that would guarantee uh, back pay for furloughed feds um, for those three days. In some cases, maybe just one day because it was uh, two weekend days and then and then Monday that uh, that it affected them. Right. I think I think a lobbyist that I talked to figured it was actually about sixty nine hours. So you had forty eight hours for the full Saturday and the full Sunday, and then part of Monday was it was shutdowns. But but it, people are always it, it strikes people on the outside is interesting the way the government shuts down things. A the fact that they do shut down things. B the reasons for the shutdown. They have nothing to do with the government. Usually, it's a it's a political bluffing match between the Republicans and the Democrats, always on some issue. In this case, it was DACA, you know, the uh, uh, the dream dreamers, and the uh, wall the between Mexico and the U.S. and the funding for that. And it sort of seems like both sides sort of shifted and went over to the other. Each one claims victory for it, but the bottom line is it's extremely confusing. Uh, to the public and particularly to federal workers, because I know we're going to be shut down. They shut just down on a Saturday. But if I'm scheduled to work Saturday, I have to go in 
and literally shut down for the shutdown, correct? If right. I, if right. I'm going to work well, Sunday, uh, how does that work? I mean, what what do they do? Well, I mean, that's that's a fascinating part of it is, as you pointed out, shutting down the government, the, the process of and also looking at the agencies where federal employees are furloughed the most. We were and still are a couple of weeks away from the start of the 2018 tax filing season. And the IRS, a majority of those employees, uh, do get furloughed in the, the event of a government shutdown. So that was, that was a major hiccup for them. Something else that we heard was the Environmental Protection Agency. They intended to stay open even during a shutdown for at least the first week of it, had it gone that long. They had cited, uh, continuing, uh, I'm sorry, carryover funding, uh, oh. that they had had stashed over from pre- previous years that they would use to to keep the, the doors open and the lights on for at least one extra week. That's interesting because when I heard that, I thought they were going to do it for some environmental reason or some safety reason or some program. But in fact, as you and I do remember reading now, it's just that they had the extra money. Right, right. Well, you even heard OMB Director Mick Mulvaney in, in numerous press conferences uh, before and I think uh, during the shutdown say uh, how how the Trump administration intended to perhaps lessen the effects of the shutdown by maybe not closing down some of the national parks through the Interior Department or in this case keeping uh, some public facing services or even or even some services like the EPA uh, running for as long as possible even during a shutdown. That's right. And that was the plan to keep at least some of the national park operations open, correct? That was the the uh, the plan, and I, that I think would be just, a first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just even walking along the the National Mall, you didn't see quite so much of the uh, the the barricades or yeah, the, the signage, signage of saying that. Uh, I, I can think back to 2013, where the the World War II Memorial was was barricaded off and signs saying due to you know lapse in government appropriations, this memorial's you know temporarily temporarily closed. Well, I know the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, said that if uh, if there was a shutdown, that D.C. would pick up the trash on federal property for a while at mm-hmm. least. And then when it was over, that they would bill Uncle Sam. So this this really was uh, considering it's so short. Say it say it was, in fact, 69 hours. This really was a groundbreaking shutdown. It's always a very disruptive process, I would say. You you always go through these contingency plans, these plan B's. Uh, for agencies and and the things that they really do inventories of of what is es- truly essential for them to to keep going and so it's always a fascinating process but it it ultimately uh, is is kind of a, a lot of uh, effort that is spent on something that that shouldn't have to happen yeah I, yeah I, I, you can't find anybody who advocates it every now and some some blowhard will say we should shut down the government for the most part. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, uh, they all want to keep it open or say they want to keep it open. Uh, the last big shutdown we had it was two weeks, I think, in 2013, and that was a very big deal. It lasted longer than most of us so-called experts predicted it would last, those of us who predicted there would be a shutdown. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, a lot, it was a hardship for a lot of people because of the timing of the pay periods, and, and everybody, as it turns out, did get paid. But some people were paid a week, two weeks, I believe in some cases three weeks later than normal. And for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck, that was disastrous. And and I know FIA, the Federal Employees Education and Assistance uh, Fund, uh, which is a, a feds helping feds charity, they ran out of money uh, making uh, the equivalent of payday loans to people. 
Right, right. Well, that, that is a, a case where there's always a little bit of uncertainty, but when it's dragged out for that long of a period of time, in that case, well, uh, well over a, uh, a pay cycle for, for federal employees, uh, that, that's the expectation of, of perhaps expecting that they would at some point get back pay, but the question of when, uh, and especially when, when bills continue to come in, that, that's, I, yeah, I and, imagine puts a great deal of incentive. And, and knowing there. you're going to get paid is, is good, but not knowing when you're going to get paid is, it adds to the stress and strain. That's the key part. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you had another interesting piece, uh, or talking about, uh, uh, women in government and science and technology and whatnot. And I thought it was particularly timely because the, uh, uh, Golden Globe Awards, the, the the music industry awards were held the other night, and only one woman won in in a major category. And there were a number of uh, women performers who protested the the fact that not many of them are nominated, and how few of them won. And then the president of the association or the director came on and made some some statement to the effect that uh, you you think you know what he meant. But he meant he. I'm for you, and I support your efforts. But he, he, he said something like, "Women need to step up," as if they weren't doing enough, and that enraged a lot of people. And I know that's a, that's a problem throughout the industry as well as government now. How, the treatment of women and and pay equity and all that. What, what was your story about? So it was really mostly a way for for uh, women leaders in federal technology jobs to give a description of of how they they have worked their way through the ranks and how they've found uh mentorship and and uh and and kind of the the guidance that they have found walk, working through those uh those ranks and and it, 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 there's no one way to to do it i mean there's some people who have been in federal government their entire lives there've been some people who have uh gone from the private sector into into government work but it's uh, they they really did speak to a, a big piece of the the mentorship part of it of of going through the ranks themselves, but then looking back and then looking at uh, young young women fresh out of college and you know being being a, a mentor, being a, a, a guidance uh, for them and working them through the the uh, the hierarchy of the the federal government. Is your your impression that the government is doing a, a good job, an excellent job, or a poor job in in bringing women into STEM, you know, the science, technology, engineering, math? Well, it got me curious. I did look back at uh, the OPM's numbers of of the things that they keep track of here, um, and I think they said for 2017, 43 percent of the workforce was was women. Um, so it's not exactly of the 50, total federal workforce of the total federal okay. workforce. Uh-huh. Uh, the the numbers there said forty three percent. So uh, not exactly fifty fifty, but I, I know the the federal government does have some benchmarks for some other things. I know that they have fallen a little short of its uh, its own benchmarks for uh, hiring uh, his, uh, Hispanic workers yeah. uh, in the federal government. So these are things that they are they're mindful of, but I think sometimes they uh, they fall just short of. Yeah, and and you you got to wonder too. Even though women outnumber men in the population, that that ne- that doesn't necessarily mean something sinister. If there's forty three percent, and I think the the problem with Hispanics in government has been around for years. In that uh, the only department I believe that has more than its um, p- portion of the population is justice. And that's primarily border patrol, things like that. So it's a it's a job specific, geographic specific situation. 
Right. Well, I think I think one of the consensuses that these uh, these women in federal technology reached was uh, it's all about broadening the the pool from that from which you're you're casting jobs from. I mean, there's a lot of schools, there's a lot of programs that they they consistently rely on to to find new t- uh, talent. So it, it's it's about um, it's about widening that pool out as much as possible, so that when they do look for new hires, it it's the the broadest uh, cast of of yeah. young folks that they can bring in. We need to take a short break here on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 AM. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to your turn. Mike Causey here, and my guest is Tom Timmon from our Federal Drive feature. And Tom and I, Tom, it's a, it's obligatory for Washington uh, talking heads and, and columnists and pundits to uh, critique the present State of the Union uh, every year. And you and I have a combined total of about 200 years under our belts. Well, I've been watching these things since I was a teenager. I, I really Arthur. enjoy them. Now, I, I watched them offset, although I, I listened to the tape and read the text actually afterwards because I can't stay up late enough anymore. Yeah. The Super Bowl and State of the Union, both too late for doing morning radio. Well, you know what was what was interesting to me uh, about this is I, I watched maybe half of it, and then I, got, I, had, I was called away on the phone, and I had to listen to most of it on the radio. And I remember reading about the Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960, which I think was the first nationally televised uh, presidential debate. There had been something like it before, but nobody had TVs in 1956, you know. But they they said that the people who saw it, uh, Kennedy was a clear winner. You know, he was handsome. He'd been in Florida for three weeks. He was beautifully tailored and all that. Nixon, even in black and white. Or, even in black and white. And, and in fact, especially in black and white, because the, the tan came through, but Richard Nixon's famous five o'clock shadow was there, and he was tired, and he refused makeup. He did the, the bags under the eyes. And people that saw it, people that saw it thought that Kennedy was clearly the winner. People that listened to it on radio by a large margin thought that Nixon had done it. And it, it is interesting just to get that perspective. Sure. Well, if you looked at the speech or heard the speech last night to me it was if you postulate that there are two donald trumps uh-huh. there's the off the cuff the off-handed remark the twittering donald trump that's one the other what we saw last night i think was a very carefully crafted rehearsed speech and reading along as he was as i was listening to it to the text he stuck to the text pretty closely very very little ad-libbing and so in that sense it was a very conventional state of the union address not unlike what we've heard from all of the other presidents, all of the applause, all of the people in the galleries. But in many ways, it was vintage Donald Trump in the sense that we saw a clear and unequivocal and unabashed reversal on a lot of policies, some greater than what affects the federal bureaucracy, but some also relating to the federal bureaucracy. And whatever you might think about what Trump's opinions are of the federal workforce, and it's really hard to tell. It is. But he did call out certain people, had them in the galleries, called them out for their accomplishments, had them stand up. There were ICE agents. There was one who took down 40 members of MS-13, a man named Mr. Martinez. He called out the Capitol Hill police for their response to the Steve Scalise shooting last summer during the congressional baseball game practice. He called out army officers who have done great work in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he also uh, called out 
well, those those three groups he called out in particular, and they stood and, and got recognized. So. It, it's typical. Of, people don't like politicians, but they like their member of Congress. People don't like lawyers, but they like their brother-in-law who's a lawyer and their friend. And, and in this case, people don't like government workers except the ones they know or deal with them or maybe save their lives. Yeah, and so he, when he called for legislation to give the federal management team across the government, thousands of people, greater flexibility to not only get rid of non-performers, but he also said also to reward the good performers. So I thought that was a little bit more even-handed than, than people might have expected. Yeah. And he, he cited the authority that VA already has, thanks to some legislation last year, to greater flexibility over the workforce. And those bills both had bipartisan support. And that's one of the uh, – he hit the nail on the head, too, because the VA is not only one of the most popular federal agencies, it's also one of the least popular federal agencies because of this the scandal in, in Arizona and other places. Yeah, and I think that they're largely past that in the eyes of Congress. There have been about eight bills passed, and the president signed several of them uh, during his first year in office to reform the VA. Now, I've talked to both the Democratic and Republican members, leading members of both the Senate and the House VA committees, and they say, okay, VA has the tools it needs now. Now they've got to deliver. And so I didn't see Shulkin stand, the VA secretary. He must have been in the room. I didn't know whether the cameras focused on him, but a lot about VA and very early in the speech, too. You know, one of the things that I look for, and I missed it last night and I didn't hear it, is who's not there. Which cabinet officer was not there? I think it was the Secretary of Agriculture. I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's there was it, one. Because I, I that's did read the, it, and I that's forgot. That's the president designee, <laughs> right? And, and I know I knew one of them one time, and he was he spent the uh, the inaugural address in an underground bunker in West Virginia. Oh, not, not Shoals Cafeteria. Not Shoals Cafeteria, and not Camp David, but it was near there. You know, yeah, that's very interesting. You know, when you mentioned we've got it at federalnewsradio.com. It just doesn't come to my mind right at the moment. <laughs> well, we. Uh, you know, when you when you talk about the president citing these different government people at a flashback, when the Air Florida plane crashed in the Potomac many years ago, you know, major tragedy. Uh, that was the winter of 79, I believe I think it was. It was yeah. yeah. But the, but the Potomac was iced over. It was February, very cold. And uh, they someone last night mentioned that the people that they bring in, it, it started with Ronald Reagan and that they called them Skutniks. And they're named for Lenny Skutnik, who was a federal worker who happened to be driving home. The yes, government indeed. had dismissed right. early On that day. On the 14th day. Street Bridge. Right. But they had been dismissed, so there were people out there. He saw somebody go into the water. They fell off of a helicopter. And he dove in this icy Potomac and rescued him and became a hero. But I got a call from CBS News. Uh, that that night, and they, uh, you know, I didn't know what they. I thought they wanted me to talk about it or something. And they said, "We have problems. Uh, one of our people said something, and we want to know what went wrong." So they flew the anchor and the producer down to Washington to talk to me. And what he had said was in, talking about Lenny Skutnik and diving in and saving this person above and beyond. He said, "Not bad for government work." Right. And yeah. he thought it was witty, and I said, not no, really. Not, not in this really, town, not but, witty at all. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the State of the Union had a lot of surprises. Uh, the president called for ending the sequestration on defense spending. That was a surprise, yeah. uh, but not on domestic spending. And that, of course, is the great budgetary divide that keeps the government from having anything but CRs, continuing resolutions now for the past umpty-ump months.
Right, and that was a, that was a uh, an Obama administration invention. You know that that came out of the OMB uh, via the White House, and they dropped sequestration. and And in their defense, they said they put it there as a poison pill, thinking it would never be used. But in fact, it was used the very first year, and that's where the furloughs came from. The furloughs where people did not get paid. Yeah, that's They'd right. Lost twenty percent of their uh, weekly income in, in many cases. Yeah, and so now the threat of sequestration is upon us again. If they if they approve a budget that is above the budget caps, then sequestration comes in. So you've got this terrible complex of things that are limiting their ability to pass a budget, big or small, for, for any of the agencies. So maybe they'll take them up on it. Maybe they'll end all of the sequestration. Never mind the deficit. At least they can get on with a spending bill that everybody can agree on. But it just it was rife with really sharp uh, reversals of things that we had heard from the Obama administration earlier. And I mean, I guess this is what they all do. But Guantanamo Bay, he mentioned that he'd signed just before the speech, he'd signed the executive order to keep Guantanamo Bay open indefinitely mm-hmm. for to, to, to uh, detain terrorists and said we're you know going to be much tougher and have been much tougher on Cuba, North Korea. He mentioned more nuclear spending. And so although we should point out that under the Obama administration DOD budget for the last couple of years, there is a lot of spending on upgrading the delivery systems for our nuclear weapons. Now I think they want to extend that to the warheads themselves. So that's going to be a big debate. Yeah, there was a, a very thoughtful piece in the New York Times recently by an expert, and he said that while the, the North Korean missiles are are few in number, you know, maybe a, a half a dozen or something like that, they're brand new, and ours are, for the most part, are very old. Yeah, we only know by computer simulation whether they would actually detonate yeah. if they landed somewhere. So, yeah, it was a pretty interesting speech, and I think he did give, you know, the the oppositions, the Democrats that are opposed to him, some room to negotiate on immigration. He didn't say we're going to end chain immigration. He just said we're going to limit it to immediate family members instead of cousins and uncles and so forth. I, I think some people are finally, whether they like him or not, are finally sort of figuring him out. He is not your conventional politician. You know, I believe at no. one point he was a Democrat, and he's certainly given a lot of money to Democrats, including the, the Hillary and Bill Clinton. But uh, as, as you said, the, the fact that his speech was so normal was abnormal to many people. It's yeah. not what we had, <laughs> I think we you're had, right about had that. seen before. Yeah. The other thing I noticed, he mentioned the infrastructure. Of course, we knew that would be coming up. And uh, he said the price tag is $1.5 billion, $1.5 trillion. I'm wondering when it went up from a trillion to 1.5 trillion. Are they already getting ready for cost overruns before well, they even pass anything? And, you know, there's numbers creep with this DACA, too. You know, it started out, the, we were seeing numbers as low as 800,000, right. and now it's 1.5 million. And I think last night it went to 1.8 million. Yeah, that's so. all the people that could be eligible yeah. as opposed to the people that have actually gotten extensions under it. So. Right. And it's important for people to, you know, without being overly cynical here, that Washington is a city where we just spew numbers out and and uh, oftentimes they have no basis in fact or, or you double them just to make it sound better. Millions isn't much, so let's go for the billions. Yeah. And now we talk about trillions pretty regularly, and that's been the milestone in my life covering all this stuff. I remember when the deficits were horrifying, you know, at, at $100 billion. And now we've had a tr- couple of years of trillion-dollar deficits. Crazy. Well, Lauren Larson is giving us the hook. Thank you so much, Tom Timmons, for being here. We'll see you all next Wednesday. Have a good week.